This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet. I'm producer Faye Adabita. As 2023 draws to its close, for this episode, we're asking, what was the biggest story of the year? Earlier this month, Intelligence Squared hosted a special live recording produced in association with Tortoise of the Tortoise podcast, The News Meeting. For The News Meeting, Tortoise's editor, James Harding, is normally joined by three people who each pitch the story they think should lead the news. But this one was different because each person was pitching the biggest story of 2023. James was joined on stage by Tortoise's political editor, Kat Nealon, news editor, Jess Winch, and a special guest, ITV's political editor, Robert Peston. We'll also be hearing a separate one-to-one bonus interview between James Harding and Robert Peston in the coming episodes, so do look out for that. This event was recorded at the Tabernacle in London on the 6th of December, 2023. And if you like what you're hearing on this episode, we do recommend the news meeting from Tortoise Media. Just search for Tortoise News wherever you get your podcasts. Now let's join James Harding, co-founder and editor of Tortoise Media, with more. Hello, it's James. This is a special episode of the News Meeting in association, I'm proud to say, with Intelligence Squared. We're recording in front of an audience at the Tabernacle here in London's Notting Hill. And because it's nearly the end of the year, we're doing something different. It's our review of 2023. What was the story of the year? After days of TV interviews, leaks and even an accidental early release, Prince Harry's spare has finally hit shelves. More than 4,300 people now known to have been killed after those devastating quakes close to Turkey's border with Syria. A rough week for the banking industry. The collapse of Silicon Valley Bank. Trump being arraigned in this historic and unprecedented moment. King Charles III is acclaimed. Everything possible is being used to try and find the missing submersible. So the bird has uh, been or is about to be replaced by a simple X. The president of the Spanish Football Association has come under fire after kissing one of the team on the lips. Brand is now facing allegations of rape, sexual assault and controlling behaviour. They attacked by air, land and sea, taking Israel by surprise during a major Jewish holiday. The UN's humanitarian chief says every time it looks like it can't get more apocalyptic in Gaza. It does. Sam Altman is out as CEO of OpenAI. We can't get enough of the pandas. The UK's only giant pandas have left Edinburgh Zoo. They're returning home to China. Quite a year. I'm joined by Kat Nealon, our political editor. Jess Winch, welcome. I'm also joined by our news editor. Jess, when you look back at 2023, is it a year that you think was marked by more news than ever. The problem of being news editor for those people who are sitting here thinking, how do you man those floodgates of information? Is it 
Has it been a busier year than usual? Yes, no, I think it has. But it's been a strange year for me because I've been working in a slow newsroom. So last year it was uh, working in a national newspaper and it was trying to keep up with everything all the time, all at once. And then this year, I think you've just seen a succession of news stories one after the other. And then the challenge for us has been trying to decide, right, where do we add the value? Where do we actually try and really get to grips with a particular element of a story? And it is difficult, actually, in that moment picking out the story that is the most significant, that has the most meaning and long-lasting impact on people's lives. Because sometimes it isn't the obvious thing. Sometimes it's the quiet thing that's kind of happening and almost forgotten. And sometimes it is the obvious thing. Sometimes we miss it, actually. Right in front of us. Well, the one thing we are also missing is Robert Peston, the third member of our news meeting. He is ITV's political editor and is hot-footing it from the ITV studio. So he'll be joining us shortly. And we're hoping that with Robert, we're going to get a sense of what he thinks has been the story of the year, not least in the context of the book that he's just written about the state of the UK. It's called Bust? Question mark. I'm not quite sure he believes in the question mark. Bust? Question mark. Saving the economy, democracy and our sanity. And so we're going to have a conversation about the year that's passed, and then we're going to turn to understanding perhaps a little from Robert, the future that might be if, it, if people pick up on the suggestions that sit in his book. So let's start. You've each chosen one story that you think is the defining story of the year. Kat, you go first. Long story short, what's yours? My long story short is the end of the party. Intriguing. Cryptic. Yours, Jess? <laughs> Before and after October 7th and the Israel-Hamas war. Not so cryptic. All right, well, listen, why don't we start there? Before and after October the 7th. Yeah, so I think this is, for me, and this is the story of the year, for really the simple reason that October 7th has become one of those dates where there seems to be a very definite before and a very definite after. And I think that is down to many reasons, but I'm picking up on three. One of them is that is the surprise element of it. 2023 is supposed to be the year that was going to be the de-escalation phase in the Middle East. You saw Saudi Arabia and Iran becoming on uh, better relations with each other. Saudi Arabia and Israel were inching towards a normalization deal. And Jake Sullivan, the US national security advisor, felt confident enough to write in a now infamous 7,000 word essay for foreign affairs that the region is quieter than it has been for decades. And he said, we have de-escalated crises in Gaza. And that went to print on October 2nd. So that, you know, that's, that was really the before that, that we were living in. And that's not to criticize Jake Sullivan, really, because I don't think any expert could have predicted what was going to happen and the scale of what was about to unfold on October 7th and afterwards. And then if you're thinking about the scale of it, it's, I think it's important not to look away from the numbers. You had 1,400 Israelis killed during the October 7th attack. We're hearing reports of women who were also raped and mutilated. You had hundreds of people taken hostage. And in Gaza since then, and this is being recorded at the beginning of December, you've had more than 15,000 people killed in retaliatory airstrikes and a ground invasion, including around 6,000 children. That means that more Palestinians have been killed in this period than in any war since 1948. And I just think the, the cost of this 
and not just in human life, which is the most important, but in this, even if you look at property and infrastructure, I think the Wall Street Journal has said that about $50 billion worth of property and infrastructure in Gaza has been destroyed. That's about two decades worth of development support. Uh, Two-thirds of homes have been destroyed. Almost all of the population have been displaced. And that's just looking at, at Gaza. And um, if you look at the West Bank, 2023 was already the deadliest year on record for Palestinians. It's got worse since October 7th. I think more than 150 Palestinians have been killed there. So again, just the, the magnitude of this on so many levels um, makes it the story of the year for me. And then finally looking at the, the impact of it beyond the immediate front, you know, beyond Israel and Gaza immediately, just the, the way that this has affected people worldwide, the way that you've seen reports of anti-Semitism increase in the US and the UK and Europe, elsewhere, the impact that this is having on other conflicts such as Ukraine. Uh, Zelensky cancelled uh, an appearance that he was due to make in front of the US Senate because there is now a sort of funding dispute over whether or not they can continue funding Ukraine. I think next year, if you're in Asia and you feel a little bit threatened by China, you'll be worried because there's only so much time and attention and money the US has, and they've sent two you know, carrier groups to the Mediterranean, so what happens if things heat up there? So this, this is one of those stories where um, it is hard and it is difficult, but it is, for me, undoubtedly, the story of the year. Kat, what do you think of this story, particularly the third element Jess mentions, the impact beyond Israel and Gaza? What do you think is the impact here on politics, society? Yeah, I'm, so I was at Labour Party conference uh, the weekend that it was unfolding, and um, I was talking to a, a Jewish Labour activist who said on the way going to the party conference, he felt that kind of dread sense in the pit of his stomach that he used to have attending conference in the Corbyn years, but that being there, he'd felt it was quite a safe space. But even there, there were protesters very early on. Um, and since that weekend, obviously, the longer that the conflict has gone on, the more the tensions have risen. And you see the sort of twin kind of heads of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia kind of rearing throughout the country. And I think it I think it makes it very difficult. I was, um, you know, I've got lots of Jewish colleagues and friends who have been talking about how it makes them scared and getting very emotional. Um, and it, I think it tells us something about our society that something that can happen so far away and yet have such an immediate impact for British people um, because of, ethnicity and the kind of way that it's wrapped up in identity. Um, I think we sometimes kid ourselves that we are an enlightened progressive society, but there are lots of things that point to the fact that actually there's still a lot of things there that we need to kind of take a better look at. And this, I think, kind of holds a mirror up to that. Jess, I asked um, Kat earlier on about balancing priorities and news. You were the foreign editor at The Telegraph, and one of the things that happens when these really huge stories break is that people then complain that other stories are eclipsed. And I appreciate yeah. you mentioned Ukraine and China. Yeah, no, but no, you can look at that because in the same, in the same month that 
the attacks happen in Israel, uh, the International Organization of Migration warns that 7 million people have been displaced in the Democratic Republic of the Congo due to violence there. 7 million. And so why do you think that this particular event is a story that's the defining story of 2023? Because one of the feelings I've had around it is a really profound sense of powerlessness. You know, people have very, very strong feelings. People have vivid commentary about what they hear and see and read in the news. But in the end, what's actually happening in Israel and Gaza is being controlled almost entirely, possibly with the exception of the US, but almost entirely by people on the ground in Israel and Gaza. So is it one of those stories that animates old hatreds, political divisions, that it re has repercussions globally for that reason? Or do we overestimate its importance because we identify with one side or the other? I don't think this is a question of overestimating its importance. I think for the reasons that I've mentioned, um, for the human impact that it is having now and has had and will continue to have for I don't know how long, uh, the fact that it will impact, I mean, geopolitics is just this big meaningless word, but isn't it, it will impact the relations within the region, it's going to impact, it might impact what happens in the US election next year. Biden's getting um, meeting at pro-Palestinian protesters everywhere he goes. And while foreign policy doesn't normally dictate US elections, I think that perception, if the protests continue and escalate, that it's a problem he can't solve, will also roll into that story as well. So I think this is a story that matters this much because of the number of areas that it touches, as well as the emotional and the human impact. Well, let's, let's come back to this at the end of the conversation when we try and weigh which really is the story of the year. But I think we should turn this and to yours, Kat, the end of the party. I can't help feeling it's quite a gear change from yeah. October the 7th really to this. Um, which party make me is seem over? flippant and... Shallow and, you know, just too, much, too involved in I politics. Yeah, let's be ourselves. Um, okay, the end of the party. So um, this is a sort of variation on a theme of basically every story I ever pitch on these, which <laughs> is about the Conservative Party's implosion. Um, but... I'm going to be slightly flexible with the year framing and take it from the point at which Rishi Sunak became prime minister, which was October, promising accountability, integrity, professionalism. He was going to be the grown up that came in, sorted it all out, cleaned up Liz Truss's mess and kind of made the party sensible again. Um, and in the time that he has been prime minister, we've had ministerial resignations slash sackings from Gavin Williamson, remember him? Dominic Raab, Nadim Zahawi, Suella Braveman, Robert Jenrick. Um, we've had uh, four by-elections losses, safe seats, traditionally safe seats. Um, Rishi Sunak's been fined for not wearing a seatbelt. Um, <laughs> he breached the ministerial code by not disclosing that his wife had shares in a childcare company that was going to benefit from one of his childcare policies. Um, and he has, he avoided the vote in which he would have had to uh, sort of say what he thought about Boris Johnson and Partygate. Um, he, up until this week, has actually avoided a rebellion, um, but that's only because he kept pulling bills where he thought there might be one. Um, and we saw also um, a, a recent poll, which was, it was sort of a, a very long piece of work covering 
polls, but also kind of really kind of digging into the data over the last 18 months, which has found that Rishi Sunak has led the Conservatives into lower approval ratings than they had under Liz Truss, which I think is quite impressive. Um, so under Liz Truss, at around the time of the mini budget, um, the number of Conservative voters from 2019 that said they would vote again had dropped to 63%. So six out of 10 uh, of the voters from there said they would vote again. Uh, last month, it was down to 59%. And um, interestingly, I think, because I'm a nerd, um, he's managed to lose um, half a million voters since the Tory party conference, which is pretty <laughs> impressive. <laughs> All right, well, let me put the counter case to you. The counter case is mm. that he's not very good at politics, but he is good at government. So you inherit the trust quarting. Um, uh, Robert's here? That's very nice. Where's Robert? There he is. Oh, hey, Robert. Um, we're just going to keep on crashing on. Um, <laughs> the, the, so the counter case to me yes. is that he's not good at politics, but he is good at government. So... He inherited. He inherits the Truss Quateng economic fiasco. Mm -hmm. Jeremy Hunt comes in. They do an emergency. He was a Liz Truss appointment. He was, but they then do that budget where they stabilise things. Then there's the spring budget where it's like let's focus on employment. Over the course of this year, they get the Windsor Agreement in place. Yes. We rejoin Horizon. Um, more recently, there's a let's make the case for investment and, you know, obviously a kind of muddled position on tax, but, you know, some tax cuts, some, you know, fiscal drag. But overall, the technocrats are back. They, but are they? they are look in at, charge look of at government. the Rwanda They're, stuff. I mean, this is the conversation that, we're, that people are having is what is the strategy? What is Sunakism? You bring David Cameron in to replace uh, Suella Braveman and then you talk about breaking international law to, to try and appease the, the right-wingers. Bravo. Hey, my friend. Nice to see you. I'm so sorry I'm late. It's a, it's a delight to be here. Robert, do you want a, do you want a glass of water, a I coffee, think actually, a I drink? think actually your lovely colleague is bringing me a glass of beer, which I think okay. feels more appropriate. <laughs> okay, good. Uh, welcome. Thanks for having me. <laughs> Thank you for being here. So I'll tell you where we've got to. Great. Um, Jess said the story of the year is October the 7th, yep. before and after. Cat is in the middle of the end of the party. And given that I'm sat in the best spot you could for that conversation, I'm just going to sit back and ask the two of you to work out, is that true? <laughs> is it the end of the Conservative well, Party? Well, if I may just finish my pitch, yeah. because it's not just start, about start Rishi again, Sunak. Because Robert won't have heard it, so go okay. ahead. <laughs> well, I'm not going to start again, mm. but I will, I will try and be succinct in what I'm trying to say, which is it's not just about Rishi Sunak's inability, political inability, and I, I take some sort of grudging respect on, on some of his, his governments. I do think that he and Jeremy Hunt are probably trying and, and probably would have a better chance at succeeding if they were at the start of a five-year term rather than where they are at the minute. Um, but it is about the sort of to use, again, another Conservative MP's term, the bin fire that has been the Conservative Party of the last two years, which has enabled this sort of sort of autopsy of the body while it's still alive <laughs> on the table. And you have, you know, Suella Braverman, Kemi Badenoch, John Hayes, Penny Mordaunt, everyone's sort of setting out their stall and saying, no, no, I'm the next leader. I can diagnose the problem. I can say wh where we're going wrong and where we should be going in the future. They still 
have got a, another year, unless there is a snap election, uh, of governing to do before we get to that point, before we can even know what's the makeup of the party after the next election, who are the people that are going to be deciding. Do you agree, Robert, with Kat's theory that essentially the party, not just Rishi Sunak, popularity is shattered, but the party is now so fragmented that the Conservatives themselves aren't really holding together. I think she's spot on. And actually, um, for me, because I've, I've sort of thought quite a lot about this recently, I've talked quite a lot about it. Uh, uh, there, it goes back to me to probably the worst decision that the Labour Party has ever made, which was back in 2018, into early 19, that was a Corn Laws moment. Um, and if the Labour Party at that point under Jeremy Corbyn had backed Theresa May's deal, the uh, Tory party would have literally split down the middle in the way that the Whigs did uh, over the Corn Laws. And we would have had a total reconfiguration of British politics. It didn't, as we know, famously, for whatever reason, uh, Labour wasn't courageous enough to do that. Um, but the underlying tensions within the Tory party were never resolved. Uh, you know, the Tory party is now, the, you know, all parties are coalitions, but this, it is the most dysfunctional uh, coalition it has ever been. And, until, you know, essentially they have to decide, uh, and they are nowhere near deciding, whether they are in effect a Farageist party, and don't forget that the members are largely Farageist. That is why we have a prime minister too scared to say in public that Nigel Farage can never join. Farage for the Tory party is the equivalent of what militant was to Labour, right? You cannot, if you are Sunak's kind of Tory, allow the person who, uh, who actually almost destroyed you to come in. It's absolutely astonishing that they, are not, they haven't got the guts to say that. And the reason they haven't got the guts to say that is because the members like Farage rather more than they like almost every member of the cabinet, including the prime minister. We're going to park the parties over and we're going to hear, Rob, if we can, your view of what the story of 2023 is. So my, so my obsession um, is with AI. Um, and because I do think, uh, to use a phrase that some of you would have heard of, that it is a general purpose technology and that this is, a, this is probably in a way, in some ways it is the most significant, some ways scariest, some ways most exciting industrial revolution, certainly of our lifetimes and maybe rather a lot longer uh, than that. And I think it's, you know, it's already, transforming the world of work. I mean, I, it, it's, I mean, this is not, you know, obviously everything is all about me, but I mean, um, <laughs> but, but it has totally changed the way that I work. I mean, I, you know, I use three or four different AI programs every single day in the way that I research and structure things. Um, and my productivity uh, has definitely uh, been massively enhanced, but I'm just one, ex uh, one example. The, the Robert, just, 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 yeah. just pause for a second. Just, just say, how, you do, how do you use AI? So if I, if I want to find out, uh, well, if I've got some data that I want to sort of uh, turn into a trend, you know, I can do that in literally a minute and a half now. Or, or do I want to see what the trend means? I can do that in a, in a minute and a half now rather than having to go through some long spreadsheet uh, process. If I want to just simply, you know, dig out some information relatively uh, quickly, it is 
way faster than just using a traditional search engine. One of the things I did, uh, so I, I've, you know, this has to do with my own mad productivity. I've also published a thriller uh, uh, this autumn called The Crash. And just as a bit of a, of a joke, I saw the, co the cover that they produced, wonderful, obviously, cover for the book, but I, but I then fed in, you've probably come across um, uh, a, 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 graphics, a graphics AI called Dalla, and I fed into Dalla the, the, you know, the sort of what the book was about, and I said, make me a cover. And, you know, frankly, it did it in literally a minute and a half. And again, it was as good, pretty much as good as the one that they paid some graphic artists rather a lot to produce. And just out of interest, that, co that cover, Robert, would have been owned by you? If, well, at the point that I produced it, yeah, yes. totally. Because it's your IP. Yeah, my IP, yeah, definitely. Um, and so, um, and so, so these are small examples, but, you know, let's, let's, let's look at... Um, the millions and millions of jobs that are basically involved in dealing with customers in all sorts of different service industries. Um, with a, with a so-called AI co-pilot, if you're sort of 18, you can provide a level of customer service that is more or less identical to what a 50-year-old can deliver who's been doing the job for, you know, 20, 30 years. Now, when you think about I mean, the implications of that are really very scary because it means that if you're an employer, you're almost certainly um, going to do two things. You're going to employ a lot of kids on low salaries um, and you're probably either going to make your 50-year-old redundant or you're going to say to them, your salary is going to be halved. Right? And we have to take steps to make sure that that does not happen, and governments can do this, right? I mean, not, not only can governments actually put in place tax structures that are more efficient, but they can also um, put in place, and this seems to me to be the big challenge here, both educational, uh, it's this, this awful phrase everybody uses, lifelong learning, we massively have to do that. We massively have to give uh, the opportunity for people whose jobs are changing to retrain. But you also have to change the nature of the welfare system. And in my view, we should have a welfare system which says if your job is changing and you need to retrain or you're facing loss of a job, then the state should provide you with an income that is not far off the income that you are losing for a period while you acquire new, new and important skills. Because the whole point about these sorts of industrial revolutions is one shouldn't be pessimistic about what they achieve in the long term, because in the long term, they will provide enormous opportunities, new employment, new, things, new jobs we haven't even thought of now. But between now and then, the disruption and the dislocation will be very significant. Um, Jess, artificial intelligence, story of the year? No, it's one of the stories of the year. This is the year, I think ChatGPT was launched at the end of last year, and this feels like the year that everyone has started using it, although I'm already feeling behind because I don't use it four times a day to try and make myself more Stop productive. Tomorrow. So yeah, <laughs> I've been thinking about AI today, and I was more immediate, I'm more immediately concerned, of, apart from the economic risks of it, is just the other risks of it, including the ability of AI to hallucinate, to, you know, to, which is when it just asserts wrong information you know, authoritatively, and you just take it as fact. You have images, you know, the one thing um, that happened earlier this year was the, the Pope in the puffer jacket, the, that beautiful, this is, this is it. The Balenciaga that, jacket. That, yeah. mo that, which I think you can say is like the first kind of AI-generated mass misinformation event. I fell for that. Isn't it? Yeah. I fell for it. 
Yeah, I was yeah, like, he looks I felt cool. Look at it. It looks, he looks and cool. that was made by a 31-year-old construction worker in Chicago who was tripping on psychedelic mushrooms at the time. Apparently, mm -hmm. this is what he told BuzzFeed. But this is, but what, but what uh, worries me in terms of immediate risk, and I'm not talking, ex, you know, that we all might might be wiped out in a few years, is that in in 2024, if you're looking at a year where I think. Uh, uh, half the world's half the world's population live in countries that are going to have elections next year, and just on that reason alone, this ability of AI to supercharge the spread of misinformation, I think, is very dangerous. Kat, has AI changed your world? <laughs> Apart from being duped with that, no. Um, so my concern with AI is that I think that 2023 has been a sort of year that we've talked about it and fretted about it, and you know, kind of threatened to run to the hills. But we haven't really done anything substantive with it. And what Jess is talking about is next year, and I agree, I think that is a big risk. And we have previously talked uh, on this show about um, the risk of disinformation, um, both uh, sort of intended um, malign states and sort of accidental sort of people creating things in their bedrooms. We, we saw, again, to talk about the um, Labour Party conference, people um, putting on Twitter... Uh, audio recordings uh, purporting to be uh, Keir Starmer slagging off Liverpool. <laughs> and they weren't true, uh, but a cab driver that I had in Liverpool, even though he rationally knew they probably weren't true, he, still. he was angry about it, um, which I think is interesting. And I think we probably do need to think a bit about how, even when we know that the Pope isn't wearing a puffer jacket or there was an influencer that, um, a Spanish influencer that doesn't really exist. She's got hundreds of thousands of followers. Um, she's very attractive, but she doesn't exist. Um, and how, what this kind of stuff is doing to our brains that we can kind of know rationally something isn't true, but still feel it. I think there is a big piece of sort of cultural, global sort of adapting to this technology. Let, let's come to the end of our conversation between the four of us and try and make a judgment on which is the story that should lead. Jess, I'm going to ask you first. As you know, you can't choose your own. So between artificial intelligence and the end of the party, what's the story of the year? Artificial intelligence. Robert? Um, yeah, I'm going to say October 7th just because the Tory party's been imploding for quite a long time. Now. I'm not sure it's this year. <laughs> Cat, artificial intelligence for October the 7th. I'm going to go for October the 7th. I just yes. think it's just, we still haven't finished seeing the consequences of that. And they have been extreme already. I have to confess that I will go with everyone else's call on this too, which is October the 7th seems to me to be the story, sadly, that will define 2023. And... If there's one thing that's true about the news, the stories that affect the most people most deeply are the ones that we should know most about. Hence, October the 7th leads. Uh, I have to say artificial intelligence, Robert, is a really difficult one because I think it's fascinating. But most of the questions we're asking about it, including its impact on people, we don't know the answers to yet. Um, well, I but... think I do, but there we go. <laughs> <laughs> and then the end of the party... Uh, as you say, I don't think it is yet the end of the party. We're going to find out next year, probably October, maybe, as Robert says, uh, in January. Um, but with that, that's our review of 2023. Thank you, Jess Winch. Thank you, Kat Nealon. Thank you, Robert Peston. A big thank you all for coming and being here on this cold night. A big thank you to Intelligence Squared. It's a total pleasure to be working with them. And a big thank you to the gang here at the Tabernacle, uh, who's made it possible for us to hold this event this evening. Thank you. Thank you. 
tortoise. This episode of Intelligence Squared was produced in association with Tortoise. Search for Tortoise News to hear more episodes of the news meeting wherever you get your podcasts. You've been listening to Intelligence Squared, where great minds meet.